The following sermon was delivered on April 4th, 2021 at Rock Bridge Presbyterian Church, a congregation of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Clinton, South Carolina. Mr. Zachary Groff delivered this exhortation entitled, Proclaiming the Resurrection on Acts 13, 13-43. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. What is the essence of the Gospel? Maybe to put it another way, what is the central tenet, the central doctrine of the Christian religion? What truth do you as a Christian believe that if it were false, everything else would be nonsense? What is the marrow of the Christian religion? The word marrow can mean a few things. Its primary definition is in reference to the anatomy of bones. In physical biology, as you all are well aware, marrow is a soft, fatty substance in the center cavities of bones in which blood cells are produced, particularly white blood cells. It's also the stuff that some people will crack open chicken bones to get to for nutritional value. If your marrow is healthy, your blood will be healthy, your immune system will be healthy, and in fact, your strength and your vitality will likely be quite robust, at least relative to if you had unhealthy bone marrow. But the word marrow can mean something else, something more metaphorical. The word marrow can refer to one's innermost being. When I ask what is the marrow of the Christian religion, what I'm really asking is what is the innermost concern or being of the Christian faith? What comes to mind? What comes to your mind in response to that question? God? The Trinity? Jesus Christ? Maybe God's sovereignty and man's salvation or justification by grace through faith to the glory of God. Maybe it's something you do reading the Bible or prayer or going to church every Sunday. You know, each of these potential answers are are, are good to some degree or another, but are any of them the marrow of the Christian faith? If we really want to answer this question, what is the marrow of the gospel, then we should consider the preaching of the apostles. We should consider the preaching of the apostles because whatever the apostles emphasized in the proclamation of the gospel is most likely going to be a real contender for answering our question, what is the innermost essential concern of the Christian what must we believe if that if we were to deny it would cast us out of the church? What is that central concern? Well, then, if we want to go to the apostles preaching, where can we find that? And where can we read reliable eyewitness descriptions of such preaching in the fifth book of the New Testament, namely the Acts of the Apostles, which is why I chose this passage this morning for us. As an historical record um, of the ministry of the apostles, and especially of Peter first and then Paul, 
And here in chapter 13, we're getting into Paul's ministry as a central focus for much of the rest of the book. We see in these years and decades immediately following Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into glory, we see many accounts of apostolic preaching and ministry. In fact, some commentators have described the book of Acts as more or less an anthology of apostolic preaching. As such, it's of great value to us in considering this question, which I've posed. You know, Luke's purpose as the author of Acts is to prove the certainty of the gospel's advance unto the ends of the earth through preaching. And he specifically charts this course from Jerusalem, the holy city, to Rome, what was then called the eternal city, in those early years. The text before you this morning, in particular Acts 13, 13 through 43, is one such example of apostolic preaching. In fact, the sermon recorded in these verses is, in my estimation, very likely the the paradigm, the archetype for apostolic preaching. There are other sermons which you might say isn't this the paradigm. And, you know, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Stephen's testimony at his martyrdom. But here in Acts 13, Paul's preaching to um, Pisidian Antioch in his first missionary journey, I believe it sets the tone for not just everything that follows, but really the whole book of what is of central concern to the apostles. What is to be of central concern to you and to me as Christians? It is one of the, if not the most representative examples of the apostles' proclamation of the gospel available to us today. And what does Paul emphasize as central to the gospel? What is Paul's focus? Well, my aim this morning is very simple. It's to show you from this text, from this sermon, that the proclamation of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is central to the gospel. The proclamation of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is central to the gospel. While I could accomplish my purpose from one of any number of texts of scripture, I chose this one. I chose this one because it is an example of preaching and the structure of Paul's address. The structure of his sermon comes together around the theme of resurrection itself. And we will unpack Paul's sermon under three headings. First, we'll look at the resurrection's place in the background of the gospel. And then second, the resurrection's place in the preaching of the gospel. And third, the resurrection's effect on the hearers of the gospel. To simplify those headings, the three are resurrection background, resurrection preaching, And then resurrection effects or effect on the hearers. First, looking at resurrection background in verses 13 through 25. Look at verse 13 with me. We see framing and history here for the resurrection. In verse 13, we read, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, 
the synagogue officials sent to them saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Paul and his team of missionaries, they brought their message to the synagogue when they arrive in this town. You see, you have their itinerary leading up to here. They lose one of the members of the team. He goes back to Jerusalem. We know elsewhere that this is a problematic episode, but I don't want to dwell on that. That's just a historical detail. And note, all of this is true. Luke, in, as the author of Acts, is giving us an historical account. But what his team does, Paul, Barnabas, and the other men do when they arrive in this town is they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. This would have been on the seventh day of the week. They're going to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. This is his common pattern. And we're given two details about this visit that really frame their presentation of the gospel. First, they are given an an invitation. They're sent for to give an exhortation. They are given an invitation to then give an exhortation. They're invited to exhort, which is precisely what Paul does. And we assume from later on in the passage what Barnabas will do with him and what the other men there will do in one-on-one conversations. And one little point I want to make here, and it's relevant to me because I'm not ordained. So whenever I get up here, it's technically not called preaching. It's called exhorting from the scriptures. But what they're doing in presenting the gospel is actually exhorting the people of God to action, exhorting God's covenant community to do something. This is not a bare rehearsal of facts and figures in presenting the gospel, but rather it's a call to action. The good news, the evangel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it demands something of you. It it calls you to do something. Second, notice that Paul's posture is described for us here. And these are not irrelevant facts. These are not just little details that we can gloss over. We need to consider them. In verse 14, look, the team sits down, we're told. They went into the synagogue and sat down. And then in verse 16, what does Paul do? Paul stood up. I don't want to read too much into this. First and foremost, this is simply an indication that Paul is going to give a formal address. He's he's delivering a sermon. He's giving an exposition, an application of the scripture reading that they had just done in the synagogue that day out of the law and the prophets. You know, sometimes it was customary for the rabbi to sit down and to teach, and that would have been fine. But that's not what Paul does here. He stands up. And I think that communicates something to us of the formality of the occasion, of the the emphatic quality of his address. This is significant. But there's another thing that comes to mind in this movement of posture from sitting down to standing up. Paul himself in entering the synagogue, comes down. But then he comes up. And this movement, it's central to the message as he presents his hearers with the gospel of Christ's resurrection that occupies the heart of it. As he presents the gospel of Christ coming from heaven, coming down, and then even down to the depths of Sheol and of death, but then coming up out of the grave in the resurrection. I can't help but think of Paul's own posture in this episode of sitting down and then standing back up. 
Moving on into into the message itself, verses 16 through 25, we see three phases of the history of this resurrection background. We see the framing of it in time in Paul's address with his posture and everything attending that. But now we see the history background for the resurrection. I'm not going to read all of these verses again, but I want to point out to you the three phases. You have the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. You have the kingship being established in Israel and then being transferred to David. And then you have, curiously, skipping over the exile and the return from exile, you have John the Baptist. John the Baptist and the imminence of the kingdom of heaven breaking in upon the earth. And what do we see about the Exodus? That God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made them great in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted hand, he led them out from it. The Exodus again and again in scripture is described as God's mighty work of redemption, but specifically of life after death of life after death and that's that's how paul begins here he doesn't begin at creation as they do in other sermons which would be totally appropriate but he begins with exodus this great movement from the land of death down in egypt to life with god in the promised land And so even the background of the gospel is saturated in this resurrection kind of imagery. The people who had gone down to Egypt, who had gone down to the house of slavery and bondage, to the land of the dead, the land of the book of the dead. Literally, they come up by the power of God, by his uplifted arm into the promised land full of life and fruitfulness in his presence. Yeah, the Exodus is a great type of Christian salvation. It anticipates for us all the blessings which we receive in fuller spiritual measure in Jesus Christ. And as we see this theme of redemption and resurrection, they, they develop in Paul's preaching here and elsewhere. He, he continues. He continues in describing life in the promised land. And what does he focus on? Well, he focuses on in verse 20 that God gave them Samuel the prophet. And then in verse 21, when they ask for a king, he gives them Saul, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. And then in verse 22, after the removal of Saul, God then raised up. David to be their king. This man whom God found to be a man after his own heart who will do all his will. So what? Why is this significant as the next marker? God brings up the people out of Egypt in the Exodus. And then when they're in the promised land, he raises up for them. Literally, God raised up a king. This King David, a man after his own heart. Why is David significant in this sermon? Because it was from his descendants, according to promise, according to that promise grounded in Genesis 3.15 in the Proto-Evangelion, where God said that the seed of the serpent would forever be at enmity against the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That promise of defeating the great enemy of God's people, and finally and fully eradicating sin and death, that promise is fulfilled in the descendants of David. 
of David, this king whom God raised up. God's brought Israel not only to an eternal king, but to an eternal savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And it was through a temporal king, through a temporary king, one whose body would waste away in the grave, would undergo decay, as we see in verse 36. It is through this temporal King David that the eternal Savior, Jesus Christ, would come. This is the good news that Paul is proclaiming. It is Jesus, then, who John the Baptist proclaimed. It is Jesus who Paul proclaimed. It is Jesus whom I proclaim when I come into your presence, when I go to any pulpit. Whom, with whom do we have to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal God and Savior of God's people? And at the heart of Paul's proclamation about Jesus is his resurrection that he is risen, that he has burst the bonds of the grave. Not only was David raised up, but so too was his descendant, Jesus Christ, raised up as our savior to be our king. And when Paul begins to speak about Jesus Christ in our next heading, when we consider resurrection preaching, the first mention of it, When he says God raised him from the dead in verse 30, Paul uses the same exact word for raised up as he uses in reference to David in verse 22. But then he moves on to another word after that. So we've considered the background then. I hope I've sufficiently laid that out for you and, and how this incident is framed, but also the history, the Old Testament history of redemption laying behind and in Paul's preaching. And now we can look at the resurrection quality of his preaching as he brings us forward in time and proclaims Jesus Christ. And there are really two uh, aspects to this. There's a narrative aspect and there's a theology aspect. Paul gives a narrative of resurrection. Then he gives a theology of resurrection, verses 26 through 39. In 26 to 31, he gives a narrative to us. And in this narrative message of the gospel, what he shows us is that Jesus came down from heaven, was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried But on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Not by his own power, mind you, but by the power of God the Father. For we read in verse 30 that God raised him from the dead. Now, This testimony that Paul gives, it's it's confirmed by those who are now his witnesses, who are now Christ's witnesses. But who are those who will believe this testimony? Who will receive such an an astounding report that God brought a dead man back to life? Look at verse 26. Paul addresses two classes of hearers here. He says, brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. And when he says to us, he's including both of these classes of hearers and as well as his missionary team. All of us together with solidarity have received this message of salvation. 
those who are born into the covenant community of the Jews, Abraham's descendants, and those who fear God, probably proselytes, what they're called, those Gentiles who recognize something true, who recognize something real about the religion of the Jews and sought to bring themselves into the community, undergoing rites of conversion and cleansing in order to do that. In our day, the message of this salvation continues to go to these two groups. So the question confronts us, which is it? Unless I'm mistaken, I don't think any of you are ethnic Jews. I can trace back my lineage to the 1300s. My father's family, the Grafs, were rabbis. And so I have something going on there. But it's been a long time, 700 years, since the Groff family was Jewish of any kind. And so I'm pretty much a Gentile myself. And so the real question for you and for me then is do you fear God? Are you a God-fearer? Did you come here today out of mere habit and happenstance? Or are you here because you cherish and revere and, and prize God as a great interest of your soul? Do you? Do I? Now, what, what does it mean, though? What does it mean to come to God in fear? The word fear, as it's used in our Bibles, it can mean the fear that you and I would immediately think of, like, oh, I'm, I'm fearful of getting in a car accident, or you know, I'm fearful of getting an infectious disease or a contagion so I don't go out in public, or I'm fearful of experiencing pain, as in I don't want that, I'm, I have an aversion to it, or if something were to threaten your life, you would be fearful of that person, you would cower before them. But that's not what fear means in this context. When we talk of the fear of God, of God-fearers, we're not talking about being sniveling, cowardly, and dehumanized in our manner of life. No, we're called to approach God as we would a father or a beloved authority figure against whom we have grievously sinned. That's a bit different now, isn't it? My children may fear me, but they trust that I love them. Do you then approach God with an acknowledgement and confession of your sinfulness and disgrace, but as a father? The only other option is to come to him with presumption and unwarranted pride or to flee far from him like we see the kings of the earth do in Revelation when they call down the mountains to cover them lest they see God's face. But if you confess your sin, you ought also to come with great assurance of his love. After all, this is a message of salvation which has been sent to us, not a message of condemnation. Christ came not to judge the world, but to save sinners. That is what Paul is telling them in his preaching. That is what we confront each and every Sunday when we come together as a church. This is a message that we bear to our neighbors and to our children, to our grandchildren, that Christ Jesus came into the earth to save sinners. And he does so by his own blood. And he proves it by his resurrection. So understanding the group of God fearers, we can now consider the second group Paul refers to in verse 26 as brethren and in verse 16 as men of Israel. What does he mean? Well, there he is speaking to ethnic Jews. And the only note that I'll make on this connection 
very briefly, is that we Christians have an obligation. We have a gospel obligation. Paul puts it well in Romans 1.16. A gospel obligation to bring the message of this salvation in Jesus Christ to the descendants of Abraham insofar as we are able to identify them. You know, some bloodlines, some families have been so uh, absorbed into the Gentile world like my own that the Groff family is a Gentile family, even though once in the past may have been Jewish. But there are still a remnant, aren't there, of ethnic Jews? Really, it seems miraculous to me that over all these thousands of years of, of dispersion and persecution, and even, even the slaughter of six million of them in the 1930s and 40s, yet there is still an identifiable ethnic group called the Jewish people. And God makes clear to us in the apostles' ministry that we as Christians must have a particular interest in their conversion, in their being presented with the gospel. That all Israel would be saved. They're not saved in some way other than Jesus Christ. They're saved in the same way that you and me are saved. There should thus be energetic efforts to evangelize our Jewish neighbors, both here at home and abroad. And there's no room, and I must say this in the 21st century, there is no room for hatred of these people. But rather, there is a need for us to be compassionate and to have a great deal of interested compassion. We have a similar obligation to bring the gospel to covenant children. And we can make that connection. Because now in our own day, after having generations of the church growing and and advancing around the world, we don't don't just have God-fearing proselytes out of paganism and then Jews with, a, with an Old Testament background and commitment to the God of the Old Testament. But we also have our own kids, our own children and grandchildren raised up under the ordinances of gospel preaching and new covenant experience. Some of whom fall away and get captured by the wiles of the world and the enemy. And we must have energetic praying and sharing with them of the gospel just as we do with the Jews themselves, for they are of the household of faith, even if and when they forsake it. Do you plead with Jesus Christ for your children and your grandchildren, for your nieces and your nephews, for your brothers and your sisters, for your friends who grew up in the church and are now out of the church, For these are our brethren, as Paul says in 26, in the new covenant. And then in verses 32 to 39, having seen the narrative of the resurrection at play, we now have more of a theology. You know, these verses really contain the meaty substance of Paul's message of salvation. The good news, the gospel, is that God has fulfilled his promises, The promises he made to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all Israel in the law and the prophets, which were read in the synagogue. And it is very likely that the Old Testament reading that day was taken from the opening chapters of Deuteronomy and Isaiah based on the language that's being used. And without going into full depth of detail here, I only mention 
that the promises of these scriptures are what Paul is identifying as fulfilled in Christ, not in an earthly descendant of David only, one who would assume his throne and reestablish a kingdom, a physical, carnal, bestial kingdom in Palestine, but no, in the spiritual kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. David's earthly throne And this is why Paul brings in so much detail about David. His earthly throne is but a type of Christ's heavenly throne, that greater glory possessed by the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 24, 27 makes the same point as the risen Christ himself explained this fact to the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. We read, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. But how are these promises fulfilled in Christ? How exactly does God do this? Verses 33, 34, and 37 use two Greek words to tell us. I've already mentioned verse 33. Well, 30, God raised him from the dead. And then 33, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, fulfilled the promise in that he raised up Jesus As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This resurrection there, using the same language as before. And then in verses 34, as for the fact that he raised him up, another Greek word comes into play. One that is specifically resurrection from the dead. And not also involving the scope of meaning as pick up or cause to arise. But the resurrection from the dead in verse 34 and then again in 37. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. The promises were fulfilled in Christ's resurrection. In Christ's resurrection, what God said to him at his baptism is proven true. He is the only begotten son of God. And then Paul declares in verses 38 and 39, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Jesus Christ did not undergo decay. He truly died, but he was not held back by his death. No, God the Father raised up Christ the Son by his power, the power of the Holy Spirit, for what? The forgiveness of your sins, Paul tells us. For redemption and the great act of redemption is this resurrection which took place in history. A bodily resurrection. No animal sacrifice. No heroic martyrdom of your own. No work of obedience or duty that you do day in and day out can fulfill God's righteousness, can earn his forgiveness for your sins. You know you sin, but you may think, yeah, but I can make up for that if I give enough in the offering plate, if I show up enough times in church, if I do enough good, if I pray enough, if I read my Bible enough. No, all of that is wiped away. Nothing can atone for sin except this. The Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone can satisfy the wrath of of God alone can make propitiation for your sins. And in Christ's resurrection, 
The promises of God are fulfilled. His wrath is absorbed and there is forgiveness of sins for everyone who believes. I asked at the beginning of the sermon, what doctrinal truth do you as a Christian believe such that if it were false, everything else would be total nonsense? Here's the answer. The resurrection. The resurrection. Without the resurrection, there's no hope for us at all. Paul says elsewhere, he says at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, Starting at verse 13, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But the good news is, that he has been raised. The tomb is empty. They will never find the skeletal remains of Jesus Christ. Because his skeleton, enfleshed in glory, is standing before God the Father making intercession for us. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Has the marrow of the gospel infused the depths of your being? In answer to this, let us consider the resurrection's effect on Paul's hearers. We've looked at the background. We've looked at the the content or substance. Now the effect, very briefly, in verses 40 through 43. What does he say? He says, therefore, take heed, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you, namely, behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. In these verses, you have a warning from Paul. He, he gives them what is to be the intended effect, that they would take heed and believe this message of the cross and the resurrection. And then he gives them a warning. He gives them a direct instruction. He tells them, take heed, open your eyes, see the truth, make sure that the harsh word of the Old Testament prophets particularly in this instance, Habakkuk chapter one, verse five, cannot be used to describe you. This is what Paul says. It's a gracious warning from God himself not to persist and perish in your disbelief. The resurrection, the message of salvation has been described to you. Christ, by his word and spirit, wherever the gospel is preached, issues an open call to you to believe in hope in the resurrection, and do you believe it? Do you believe this great news of the gospel? The world reckons it to be foolishness, but it's in fact the amazing hope of Christianity, isn't it? If you reject it, the world may accept you, but what will you be? Look at verse 41. Behold, you scoffers, a scoffer. And of what would you be a scoffer? Of whom would you be scoffing? The power of God, of God himself. 
For it is God who raised up Israel from Egypt with an upraised arm. It is God who raised up David to be king over Israel. And it is God the Father who sent forth his son to the world. It is God the Father who raised up his son in the resurrection. Do not scoff at this, my friends. For where do scoffers spend eternity? It says it right here. They perish. They perish eternally. They will suffer soul-crushing torments of alienation from God for all eternity in hell. There's no escape for the scoffer. His place is in hell, separated from the love of God forevermore. But the believer, the one who fears God, the one who receives this report of Christ's resurrection with gladness and, and faith, he will enjoy eternal blessedness and bliss in the presence of God's uh, goodness and grace forevermore. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory will be openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying, enjoying of God for all eternity. We confess that in our Westminster Shorter Catechism. What benefits do believers receive at their resurrection? And this exactly, to enjoy God. Verses 42 and 43 then bring to a close Paul's sermon in giving us a record of the response of his hearers. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Now, consider this response. This response brought about by the Spirit through Paul's preaching in this account. The people, they come alive. They kept begging that these things might be spoken to them at the next Sabbath. They received Paul's call to believe on the risen Christ as the fulfillment of all God's promises to the old covenant people of God, the fathers. And then they call Paul and Barnabas to remain with them to speak further of this glorious gospel, this amazing resurrection, the grace of God shown to them in Christ Jesus. Paul had given them an exhortation to believe the gospel. And they, in turn, were speaking to Paul and Barnabas, urging them to continue in the grace of God. What does this show us about the people in Pisidian, Antioch? They were spiritually alive. They had been born from above. They had experienced a spiritual uh, resurrection in response to Christ's physical resurrection. And they wanted More, more of what? More resurrection, more Christ. They rejoiced in Christ's resurrection and redemption, and they sought to then grow in the grace of God as Paul and Barnabas continued to instruct them in the grace of God. Does this describe you? Is this why you come to church on Sunday? Is this why you read your Bibles? Is this why you go to your knees in prayer? Or is all of that mere habit and happenstance? There are two roots set before you then by this passage, by Paul and his preaching. You can be a scoffer bound for hell, rejecting God's grace now, rejecting his grace for all eternity. Or you can come to life at the revelation of Christ's resurrection. Accept this gospel message as true and as the basis of your hope now, such that you will enjoy his blessedness forevermore. What will it be? And you might be thinking, 
because I can't see into your hearts. You might think, I want to believe it, but I just can't. A man brought back from the dead? But oh, how I want this Jesus. How I desire this, this hope that you have, young man. But I just can't, I can't believe that. You're right, you can't. Not without the Spirit bringing you to life. So plead with God. Plead with him. Give me the forgiveness of sins. Give me the Spirit. You know, you cannot reject the historical truth and testimony of the resurrection and be a Christian. It's impossible. To reject the resurrection is not only folly and foolishness, but scoffing at God and his power. It's not some neutral belief. If you reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you are without hope in the world because you scoff at God's testimony. You make him out to be a liar. Do not scoff at the truth of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't it he who created all things by the word of his power? Thus, can't he, can't he do this, raise a man from the dead, and especially a perfectly righteous man who deserved not death in the first place? My friends, this is the marrow of the Christian religion. Without this, all life and vitality is drained away from our confession and our church. And we've seen it again and again in different denominations and particular churches who deny the resurrection and then consequently hemorrhage out not just members, but all spiritual vitality. What is the innermost concern or belief of the Christian faith? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It holds everything else together. And I will end with a great word of encouragement to you as, as you consider the resurrection's effect on all of us. Christ's resurrection is but the down payment. It's the first fruits of the renewal of all creation. When he returns in glory on the cloud, riding the heavens as his chariot, then we will be raised from our earthly slumber and death. Or if we're living when that happens, we'll be remade in an instant, made just as he is at the sound of the trumpet in the twinkling of an eye. We too will be resurrected in body and soul to dwell with God for all eternity without sin, without pain, without weariness, without sorrow, with no more regrets. Do you hope in Christ and in his resurrection? Do you live with and in this glorious hope? If so, then surely you will experience the blessedness of God in your own resurrection when the ravages of physical wear and tear, the march of age and sickness and need of every kind will be reversed in an instant. Then all things will be made new and we will live fully alive to the goodness and glory of God in Christ. On this his day, this Lord's day, let us rejoice in the resurrection of our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.